The scripture in which today's uh, passage will be preached comes from Philippians chapter 4. I'll be reading from verses 4 through 12. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is God's word. Friends, uh, it's, it's really a pleasure of mine to introduce uh, a friend uh, who's a dear friend to Metro. If you've been attending Metro, you know uh, our brother here. Um, he is uh, probably one of my closest friends on the whole earth. Uh, we met, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I mean, I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to tell you a quick story. I was on a bridge, Tacony Palmyra Bridge, traveling up over the bridge to go to some, some meeting or something like that. And I hear this dude on the bridge screaming, like he's screaming out loud, right? And I don't know what he's saying because my car, you know, my, you know, the windows were up and stuff. But the, all of tra- <laughs> This guy, he's, he's crazy. Don't ever invite him back, though. <laughs> um, but uh, what happens, I'm like, what's going on? All of traffic comes to a halt. I come out of the car. I mean, literally on the bridge, I come out of the car, and they're like, somebody's about to jump off the bridge. And this dude is trying to stop him from jumping off. And then all of a sudden, mayhem, because the guy actually jumped, right? Years later, I hear Pastor Doug Logan preaching, and he's telling this story about how he was on the bridge uh, that one summer, and with this guy who was about to jump off. So before I even really met Pastor Logan... We were actually on the same bridge together. I'm complaining because I'm in traffic, and he's the one holding it up, right? Um, and, uh, and yet, and that's the way my life has been ever since. Um, I call him the Chris Tucker to my Jackie Chan, my Kumar to my Harold. Uh, and, um, man, he, he's been a dear brother, a counselor, a confidant. Um, you know, I, I probably talk to him on the phone three or four times a week, and uh, he's just a dear brother and friend, and... We're just glad to have him here. We can't wait to, to hear from him. So uh, without any further delay, I have uh, Pastor Reverend Dr. Doug Logan Jr. here. The police just oh. call me Doug. <laughs> Love you, man. Hey, guys, and that was, that was true. I was trying to talk the dude off the bridge. And I'll say this for um, that's been a big part of um, shaping my ministry. I'll tell you why. Um, what they, they, couldn't, they couldn't show what happened on Tacony Palmyra Bridge that day. I'll tell you the last bit. I got to the dude and what am I, somebody waving at me. Am I in trouble? 
And so I get to dude, dude says, I said, bro, um, you look dressed up, bro. Why don't you just get back in the car and go where you're going? He said, back up or I'll jump. I said, well, bro, you already saying you're jumping. And he says, I just need to call my kids. So he borrowed a phone. Don't laugh, it's gonna seem funny. He opens the old Nextels. And he's doing the, the walkie-talkie feature with his kids. He's climbed on the other side of the bridge like this, on the other side of the railing. He reaches up to close the phone. And he fell by mistake. I run over as I'm seeing him bumbling to go get him, but he falls. I look over the top. This is what he says to me, and I'm not even being funny. Aren't you gonna come down and help me? This is what I said. You see that buoy? You're only in about five feet of water. Go to the buoy. He says, I can't. I said, you can. He says, come get me. I says, I can't. When we talk, and then you know, all the people that were gathered to see him jump, once they saw him, him fall, and then he was clearly struggling to not just let the current take him, they just drove away. The show was over. You know what we are as believers? And Jesus is the model. Jesus jumps in and gets that dude. So if you're here today, we're all on the verge of jumping with no hope and no help. But Christ is that awesome lifeguard to jump in to our danger and rescue us. That has shaped my ministry is that dude jumping off. Now, it was crazy that day. Me and Donnie lived in Palmyra. I lived in the hood. He lived in a nice part. And, um, but, and my son and Tina graduated together in the same year. So listen, man, I'm happy to be here. I just told you that somber story to, to stir you up. Can we give the Lord praise? I know y'all don't do that. Y'all think y'all... Y'all think y'all Presbyterian, y'all not no more. Amen, somebody. Amen, amen. So we're going to jump into this joint. I had a good time. I, my, my youngest got married yesterday, so he is out. I'm an empty nester. Amen, somebody. <laughs> yeah, boy, I can't wait to get home to my house with no more children. Amen. So we're going to jump into this Philippians, John, today. I've been meditating in and around this idea as a pastor, as a president of a seminary, professor, dad, granddad, and I'm a great granddad as well. My great grandson was born December 29th, so he's coming up on his one year birthday. So, man, as an old dude, I try to always control stuff. I try to fix things. I'm a pastor, I'm a fixer, and my fixing is failing more and more as my life expands more and more. So I'm learning to have a different posture, and that sends us in. Let me jump right in so I don't mess up. Philippians chapter 4, 
verse 4 through 8. Pastor Donnie already read it, so we're going to leave it there. But let me jump in. Ministry is hard. And there will be times when you will wonder if this calling is even worth it. And that's not just for preachers, that's for all of us. There will be times where you'll consider quitting, where you'll wonder if this Christianity thing is real. But God has a word of encouragement for those who are feeling like that. Like I've told you, I've felt lack of control, feel like quitting, things are overcoming. And the worry and the struggles of my life seem to be more than the worship of God in my life. So the Apostle Paul reminds us that even in suffering, we have reason to rejoice. We can have a posture of praise and we can petition God because we have the promise from God that gives us a hope no matter what circumstances we may be in. How does one maintain a joyful heart in this Christian life, especially during times of hardships and suffering? Paul is seemingly indicating that believers in Christ um, have to have a posture of praise, always. I want that to hit you because I know in our little reformed world, we think praise is emotionalism and it is emotion and it goes ism when you play with it, but it is emotion. Why? Because going to hell is an emotional thing. And when Jesus saves you and you know you ain't going to hell, but you deserve it, you should be emotional. It's an emotional thing. Come on. We got one North Philly worshiper up in this piece. I know, I know, we've we got different cultures. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me be contextual. You ought to have a posture of praise, always. Not jumping around and just singing songs super loud, but, but more like a disposition in all circumstances as the foundation for your belief in your disposition is based on the fact that Jesus Christ's work is finished. That's important because your praise is not based on the elevation or the note of the song, but it's based on the finished tomb, the empty tomb, the finished, the bloody cross. It's based on the promise of God. And so how is my praise locked and loaded every day, no matter the circumstances? Because the tomb is empty unchangeable, will not change. The devil is defeated. Victory in Jesus is the, it belongs to those who believe. So how can I praise him on a bad day? The tomb is empty. How can I praise him on a good day? The tomb is empty. We always have a posture of praise. See, in the black church, when it's real good like that, Pastor Tim, jokers take a praise break real quick right there, and they remember how good he is. See, sometimes... You, Christians forget how good God is because they've made grace oatmeal and not a gourmet meal of the Father. Grace is not some common oatmeal. The salvation that you've received should make you wake up for no good reason and just shout hallelujah for no good reason. But it is a good reason. You should be going to hell, separated from God from all eternity. But because of his grace, Sometimes we forget how far we were away from God. So that's why you got to stop and take a praise break sometime. See, if I was at the Church of God in Christ, Pastor Donnie, the joker would have ran and jumped on the organ. See, Tim ain't even move. <laughs> Doggone Presbyterians. <laughs> so Paul 
is writing this passage. He's writing this passage to the church that met at Philippi, where they were experiencing challenges and quarrels with one another. And others in the city, the early church experienced hardships because they knew the gospel was infiltrating communities. Yet, although the apostle Paul was in prison writing to these Philippians, he was in prison, he tells me, he tells them to rejoice. Paul was in prison and still rejoicing because the gospel that he was preaching gave him joy. And he commanded the people, the church in Philippi, that wasn't in prison to rejoice. So if a man in prison, and when you think of Paul in prison, I don't want you to think like the prison in Philadelphia, the jail in Philadelphia, you know, where you have meals and air condition and correction officers. I want you to think mud and rats and excrement and evil and no Miranda rights and chains and dead bodies jail. And he's yet saying he's rejoicing. That's good news for us and every believer. So my three points, I'm gonna get us out of here. Is the prayer, the praise, the prayer, and the promise. Let me land, the title of my sermon is I Ain't Worried About Nothing. Now, some people might know that song here. Some people might not. That song is by the great urban poet named French Montana. Now, French Montana's song flows out of an idea of his personal swag and his cash that puts him in a place of not worried about anything that he needs or anything he wants. He, he, he says it from a place of his money and his swag has created for him a level of sovereignty that he ain't worried about nothing. It's funny, I saw him in a mask before and um, he's worried about something. And, um, <laughs> but the thing he does in this song is he, he shows his sovereignty and his ability to control his own joy with his own swag. And I wanna flip that term on its head, because I think Paul is saying that, but he's saying it from the power of Jesus, not the power of cash. First idea here is the praise. I ain't worried about nothing because I got a praise because I can rejoice in the Lord. Look what it says in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Stay with me, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. It's like Paul is saying, let me say it again for the people in the back. He says rejoice, and for the people in the back, I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. That's what he's screaming. He's saying, you need to have a holy joy as a believer. A holy joy is based on a holy God, not based on your circumstances. It's a holy joy. So this double rejoice is is it carries the tone of really pushing and emphasizing the reality of the word joy. He's saying, believer, you ought to have a doggone joy that's set by God. Rejoice. 
That's your Christian duty. We rejoice not just in circumstances, but we rejoice in the Lord, in him, in his presence, in his power, in his perfections, in his peace, and in his promises. We can have an authentic joy no matter what nobody says, no matter how much they hate the church, no matter how much disbelief is in this world, no matter how many people the devil tries to send to shoot people, we still have a joy in Jesus. So we ought to give him praise. And this rejoice, this double entendre to rejoice, I call that we ought to have a a redundant rejoicing. We ought to redundantly be rejoicing. We ought to overdo joy. We ought to be joy, ridiculous joy. We ought to have a praise, and you should have a praise that people wonder and ask you, what the heck are you happy about? The world is a mess. Your life is a mess. Your money is a mess. Your relationship is a mess. Two of your family members have died. This has gone wrong. But you, in the midst of that redundant rejoicing, say, oh yeah, that's all true, but the tomb is empty. And Jesus has saved me. I don't know about you, but that makes me, in a world where, you, where medication is designed to bring you a fake joy, a real powerful joy. And I'm not knocking on medication for joy. I've, I've had my share in my times of suicidal feelings and deep anxiety and deep depression. All I'm saying is, ain't nothing like a good old praise and a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done in God for us, for those who believe. So we ought to sometimes just give him praise for no good reason. Why don't we do that now? I know y'all scared. Don't be scared. Come on. We ought to give him praise because he's worthy. That's that good redundant rejoicing. See, the Apostle Paul isn't saying just rejoice sometimes. He's not saying rejoice when things are going good. He's saying rejoice, not just saying rejoice when your life is thriving. No, he's saying rejoice always in every circumstance, in every situation, in every hardship, through every challenge. He's screaming, rejoice. And when we get to verse six, Paul gives the command. He says, don't worry about anything. I ain't worried about nothing is what he's screaming. See, what's strange about this command is that Paul's circumstances, he had every reason to be worried or anxious, the ESV says. But Paul was in prison with no light at the end of the tunnel. He had no appeal to be made. He had no public defender or private defender. He was persecuted for his faith and he was guilty of loving Jesus so he couldn't get off on a loophole because he was guilty because he did love Jesus and his future was looking gloomy. If anyone but Paul gave this command, it would seem more reasonable. But Paul, who is locked away, separated from everyone that he loves, he gives encouragement to not worry about anything. He screams to the church at Philippi, I ain't worried about nothing. I'm in jail. I ain't worried about nothing. I'm in a mess. I ain't worried about nothing. It's a kangaroo court that's going to prosecute me, but I ain't worried about nothing. That's what he writes. That's nuts to me. Paul is saying that while our worries often come from our circumstances, but because we have a greater hope that goes beyond our circumstances, We need not worry. Believer in Christ, if you're here, you have a greater hope beyond the bad circumstances. God is bigger than your circumstances. Well, you don't understand, Pastor Doug. No, I do. Whatever you tell me is bad, God is bigger. 
Whatever you tell me you did, grace is bigger. I'm from the hood. People would say, oh, Pastor Diddy, I can't come to your church because if I walk in your church, the church going to burn down. I'm so bad. I said, we got insurance. Burn it down. We'll get a new one. I, we need some new speakers anyway. Do you know when God saves you, he doesn't second guess that? After you mess up multiple times, he doesn't say, well, maybe I shouldn't have did it. No, he knows you, fully knows you, fully knows your grime, your slime, your lies, your, your, your porn addiction, your alcoholism, your lies, your plagiarism at your college and seminary. He knows all about it. And he still dies on a cross and he still reaches from the foundations of the world to save our nasty selves. And he ain't worried about nothing. So if I'm in Christ, neither am I. I can say that with truth, not like French Montana based on money. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Let me tell you, not worrying about anything flows out of the sovereignty of another. You see that? Often our worry flows when we try to be sovereign. We try to control things. We single and we trying to control to get this dude. We got the Facebook picture going too far sometimes, male and female. You got these little dudes showing their little greasy muscles with bacon grease on, trying to attract some chick. You stop that, you put on a shirt. <laughs> and you got ladies flirting with dealing with dudes who ain't godly because you're struggling and you, you're tired and a little thirsty and you can't wait? Nah. Stop trying to operate in your sovereignty. Can I tell you about your sovereignty? It ain't real. I love propaganda. He says, there's no way you can be sovereign. A human can't be sovereign because the greatest scientists haven't even figured out why we yawn. <laughs> How can you figure out the eternals? The greatest scientists haven't figured out how we get a common cold. You can't figure out your life. But I got a God who has the whole world in his hands. So often your worry is about losing control of something that you have no control over. It's a schizophrenic bipolar reality. If you think you're sovereign, you have a, a spiritual schizophrenia that is destroying your hope and it's messing you up. But when you come to the end of yourself, then you can say, God is in control. God saves from the uttermost to the guttermost. God runs this thing. It's God who loves. It's God who sent his son. Oh, I'm good. I'm, re I'm killing my kingdom, shutting it down. I'm, re I'm, I'm walking in reality now. I actually have no sovereignty. And now I ain't worried about nothing because my God is good all day. His grace is good on a bad day. His grace is good for death, it's good for life. His grace is good for sickness, it's good in divorce situations. His grace is good for abandonment. His grace is good, a standalone good. It never need no modification because Jesus alone is worthy. He's powerful, he loves the nastiest people. So when I think about Jesus, I ain't worried about nothing. And believe, we're going to get a Baptist out of this crowd one time. <laughs> I don't need no praise to preach. I preach that church is there. They walked out. Amen. They thought I was angry because I was so loud. I said, that's just black. 
We've experienced some charge, some hard times. But I love the text. Look what it says. I'm trying to, trying to land the plane without coming. Clement and co-workers, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. You see that? So no matter how many the struggle, the challenges are, often when we feel out of control and we try to pick up sovereignty and create a kingdom, it flows out of us feeling distant from God or as if God is absent or as if he's abandoned us. I can tell you, grandma told me, if there's a relationship between you and God and y'all feel distance, I promise you it was you who moved, not him. Therefore, what does Paul tell them in the midst of their challenges and struggles? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to the least last and lost. The Lord is near to his children. God can see a black ant on a black hill on a black night. Surely he can see your struggles. Surely he can see your anxiety. Surely he can see your troubles. The Lord is near. I grew up in the hood. I was a little dude, not no more. But as a little dude, and when I say little, I graduated high school in 1988. I was five, five, 133 pounds, Donnie. But I grew up in the hood, so I wasn't that great of a fighter. I could hit and run, though. But if I had to get into tussle, but when my big old strong Doug Sr., my father walked up, it was as if I got a courage that I didn't have when he was there. So when Paul says the Lord is near, child of God, you better act like your daddy runs this earth. Child of God, you better act like your daddy's in charge of this eternity. You should have a confidence because of the confidence that God has to send his son and secure your life for all eternity. Your God is near. That's not a token, corny, weird idea. That is actual. His eminence is upon us. He's transcendent, yet imminent. He's near. So when you're going through your trials and tribulations, he is not a distance daddy. Nobody has to send a subpoena for him to pay child support. He is near. He is with you. He is very present help in time of trouble. There's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. You have a father who doesn't abandon. The song says he's a good, good father that's what he is. And I'm loved by him. And that's who I am. My identity as a child of God is the Lord is near to me. He doesn't leave. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't tap out. Never been a deadbeat dad. Can never. His whole reality of his perfections makes him the perfect dad. He's near. Maybe you're struggling. He's near. Maybe you're here and you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you're struggling with the church for hurt. I don't care. He's near. Come to him. Call on him. Ask him to save you right now. He's near. He's Emmanuel, God with us. The Hebrew better says, with us is God when you see Emmanuel. So with us is God. He's near. Josh, I'm doing bad. That was too long. Josh helped me write this, so if it's too long, it's blaming on Bolo. It was him who did it. And his partner muscles with the fuzzy hair muscles. Y'all don't even know who that is. That's so good. 
prayer. I ain't worried about nothing because I can pray to God. I commune with the Lord. Don't worry about anything. Verse 6, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request. Notice the passage that Paul tells the Philippians to pray and petition to God with thanksgiving and not pray for changes in, their, in, um, in his or their circumstances. Most of the time we pray, we pray about our circumstances, our plea for change in our circumstances. While there's nothing evil about praying for our changes in our circumstances, we often miss the point of prayer. Can I tell you, prayer, prayer is about intimacy with God. Prayer is about dependence in God. Prayer means submission to God. Prayer means surrendering to God. Prayer is meant to shape you. It's not meant to shape God. What am I saying? And I'll land a plane on this point. Prayer, this intimacy, when you're with him all the time and you're spending time with God, you build a relationship and from that relationship, there becomes a closeness, a nearness, a knowledge grown in a grace and knowledge of Christ. And that in and of itself gives us confidence because we are saturated in God's love and his kindness because we always spend time with him. We have more prayer time than screen time. Amen, somebody. And we spend time talking to him, not only praying for our circumstances. And remember, and if you... Let me jump from here and go to Psalm 13. In Psalm 13, there's four how long statements. And those four how long statements fall out of desperation. How long, Lord, will you ignore me? How long will you forget me? How long will you turn your face, he says in Psalm 13. But then once you get down to verse 4, right before you get to verse 5, nothing changes in his desperation, in his despair, in his destruction of his agonizing terms of how long. You know what changes, though. He says, but I have trusted in God's unfailing love. What is he saying? And what am I saying? He goes fully through the problem for four verses. And then at the fifth, no circumstance changed, but his praise changed. Why? Because his posture changed. Why? Because he went to God and he saw his situation through the lens of the cross. He no longer saw his situation through the lens of Zeni optical, but he saw it through Jesus. And when you look at your problem on this earth and you see it through yourself, well, woe is you. Well, it's the worst thing ever. It's not. Well, you don't understand. I do. I want to ask you, when you see it through the lens of the cross, an innocent man getting put to death on a rugged cross, hammered nails in his hands and they didn't go to Home Depot and get new nails. They just pulled them out of the other dead dude and slammed them in our Savior's hands and wrists. And yet he did not open his mouth or come down because he had Metro Church in mind. He knew y'all needed saving. He knew I needed saving. And he stayed on the cross to make a way out of no way, a way that you couldn't make. You are not powerful enough to save yourself. You can't fix yourself apart from Jesus' saving work. We're all hell bound with no hope without God. But because of Jesus, and that's the one we pray to. That's the intimacy we have. We think and petition to him, not just to get rid of our problem, but to, but to show us the problem through the lens of the cross, through the lens of grace. And when I see the cross, I see Jesus volunteering to die. 
I see Jesus dying for someone else because he was guilty of no sin, but he was willing to die for the sins of the world. Isn't that a big picture? So are you willing to die for, are you willing to die for your preferences to others? Or will you willing to express, to experience pain for others? Well, you can, but you got to see your struggles and your suffering through the lens of the cross, not through the lens of your convenience. It's always inconvenient in an earthly mind to suffer. But it's never inconvenient in a Christian mind because Christ is our model of glorified sacrificial suffering for others who didn't even deserve it. Look at Jesus. So we make our prayers. Tim Keller, um, I won't pick on you, Donnie. I'm ready to. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says, prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. What am I saying? It's not just, it's talking to God like a good, as a good father. And it's experiencing God that changes you. Talking to God and changing. That's what a good mentor does, right? I'm a father. I just married my son off. We had some challenges towards the wedding. Um, you know, stuff. But you know what he kept coming back to? The gospel. This is going wrong. The parents are tripping. The gospel. The money's messed up. The gospel. And his intimacy with God drove him to solutions from God. Without intimacy from God, we're driven to solutions from self, operating in our sovereignty. And your sovereignty will send you to hell. God's sovereignty, he's the saving God. Third point, I think that's my last two, Pastor Donnie. Because these folk looking at me like I'm crazy. Folk online saying where they get this loud joker from. But they do like my, my fuchsia. My third point, my third point. So as we make petitions to God, let me declare that to you. Believer in Christ, you must pray to God all the time. It's not an option. You're commanded to, and it's good for you. It's like broccoli. Hate it, but you know it's good. And you'll grow into it, into comfort, into understanding this deep need for intimacy with God. And in light of that, we move to, from the prayers and the petitions to God, communing with God, now we stand on the promises of God. This is vital. This is vital. So we praise God at all times. Why? Because we ain't worried about nothing. We pray to God all the time. Why? Because we're learning how not to worry about nothing. And we stand on the promises of God so we can not worry about nothing and teach others for the in our future generations not to worry about nothing. Not based on French, but based on the text. Last point, verse 4-8. Think on these things. Meditate as I reflect on um, this, is, this is the message translation. Um, mentally, you've got to stay sharp. You've got to stay clear. You've got to stay focused on Jesus. 
Psalm 1, 3, 1, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 helps us understand the dwelling and the intimacy of the constant ingestion, ingesting God's word and ingesting God's promises as new fresh air for the believer to continue to keep him highly worked out in Holy Ghost calisthenics working in and through him so he's always in shape for this Christian life. Psalms 1-3 says this, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of the sinners or sit in the company of the markers, of the mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a plea planted besides flowing streams and bears its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, whatever he does prosper. So you see this? He dwells on the word of the Lord day and night. This is just Paul's call to meditation. We've lost so much of that because we have C.S. Lewis quotes on Twitter. We're so smart now, we talk through our situations and not pray and look to God through our situations. We theologize and not agonize on our knees through prayer. We must find our way to the foot of the cross, church. We must find our way to tears for the lost in East Falls and in Cherry Hill. We must not just spend time theologizing about the lost. We must spend time agonizing that drives us to evangelizing the lost. And how do we do that in this rough, crazy world? We stand on the promises of God. But how do we do that? We're constantly dwelling, reading, operation, saturation, saturate your heart with the word of God. So Paul urges you to dwell or think on the promises of God. Interesting word there. This word is a verb in the Greek, which is the original language, a term from where we get the word algorithm, which is a mathematical term. So when you think algorithm, you think something that is carefully calculates. So when you says think on these things, it's not some mundane, lackadaisical, ethereal thing. No, it's gonna require some discipline and some work. It's like a logarithm, it requires careful calculation. You got to put this thing together. You got to work it out like a mathematical problem. If you desire to remain in God's peace and continue to dwell on all that is what he says in the text, he says, all the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Then he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praise worthy dwell on these things so how do we walk in God's peace it's by dwelling on working out the mathematical equation not just osmosis Christianity but the hard work of seeking God of setting a schedule of putting in of getting an app 
that does more than entertain you to work out the work of standing on the promises of God by operation saturation, saturating your mind and heart with the word of God. And when you do that, Paul gives us a clear plan. He says, dwell on God's glory, dwell on God's justice, his purity, his beauty. It's praiseworthy. For For if we spend a half hour If we spend half of the time talking about Jesus the way we spend worrying about the world or scrolling social media, then our hearts and minds would be filled with the joy and peace that comes from God instead of the anger and anxiety that comes from us being sovereign. As I close, if we ain't going to worry about nothing, we got to give God praise always. We have to pray and make our petition to God always if we're not going to worry about nothing. And then we got to stand on the promises of God and dwell in those. And Jesus is our model. See, dwelling on the promises of God are easy. You know why? For you, Christian, they have been fulfilled in Christ. Dwell on the goodness and the faithfulness of Christ. Dwell on the blessings we have received from Christ. Look at this text so you understand the difference between Paul's command to believers and Jesus. See, Jesus is honorable, yet he lost his honor on the cross to die in our place. See, Jesus is just, yet he experienced the ultimate injustice to die in the place of sinners. Jesus is pure, yet he took on sin and judgment of God for our impurity in our place. Jesus is love yet he endured the unlovely wrath of God for the unlovely sin that we have committed because he was without sin. Jesus is admirable or commendable and, and the gospel is worth preaching to the least, last, and lost who are outside of Christ now that they might know him, that they might be admirable in Jesus. It is the cross of Christ where God has delivered and fulfilled his promise. It is the cross of Christ where we have power in our weakness. On the cross, Jesus experienced no joy so that you would be able to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, no matter the circumstances, dwell on these things. Father, we pray and we thank you for your grace. And we pray, God, that anybody here that doesn't know you would be troubled in their soul right now, disturb their sleep, disturb their day, that if you're driving them to receive you as Savior, God calls them to cry out, Lord, save me. And Lord, we are happy to receive them at Metro. We'll take the raggediest, the most angry, the most drama. We take them with warrants. We take them with high, that's high right now. We take them with folk with weed in the car right now. We don't care. You send them to Metro. We're going to love them. We're going to smack them around with some grace, some good food and some good love. So God, send them. And God, our prayer here at Metro is throughout this city, particularly in these falls, send every person that hates you to meet them, meet you here. And Metro is going to meet them with love, grace, and patience. So help us, God. We want big problems. We want building problems. We want not enough water for baptism problems. We want problems that we don't have enough pastors. So we got to train more. Give us those good problems for your glory. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.